want to invite you to turn to the book of Titus. As you know, we have been coming through the Word of God book by book. Our church has been in existence for just a little over two years. We started coming through, laying out solid concepts that everybody needs to know and understand to, uh, you know, really be useful as a minister for Christ. And we then moved into trying to uh, put the whole Bible together as we started coming through book by book. And many of you throughout the week are working on putting all that material together. We got it on on tape so that at any point in time somebody can get it and start going through it. And as I've said every week just about that we meet together or almost every time that, you know, I'll spend an hour a week with anybody helping you put the Word of God together, uh, showing you how to do it or whatever situations or problems you may have in your life. That's what I'm here for. And, uh, you know, we saw as we started to come through, then we, we took a Thursday night and, our, and took a special session there where we really started focusing on, on uh, how to make up your own study Bible. And all this has a purpose, and, you know, within the last couple of weeks, you know, as we've had our meetings and we've talked about uh, some of the things that, we've, that God has have given us and we've kind of laid them out, like Thursday night and uh, last Sunday morning in our, in our, our meeting we had with the guys and, and, uh, and, and even on yesterday morning, Saturday morning when we laid some things out, you're beginning to see now that uh, uh, where we're going and uh, what we're going to try to accomplish. You remember right after the first of the year, we had a, a planning session. And that planning session was twofold for me. And if you remember back then, I, I told you that we had two goals. One, it was, a, it was a strategy for growth, how to reach people and to influence them for Christ. And then the second aspect was a strategy to build leadership. And uh, God has given us a host of young men and young ladies and, uh, you know, it's our responsibility, my responsibility to help you and train you. And, of course, uh, as you're beginning to see now, I hope, you're beginning to uh, see how that uh, it's all beginning to come together and, and where we're going to go from here. And, uh, you know, the Lord just kind of opened it up, you know. And, like I said, last, last I felt like it was time last Sunday morning to uh, lay out some things. And then again Thursday night. And, uh, and then again, uh, you know, Saturday morning for those that are into the discipleship aspect of it. And uh, because what we're looking at here, and it's all in God's timing, we got into the pastoral epistles. That's what First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon are commonly called. Maybe not so much Philemon, but I put it in there because of what you got there. And it's great material, as I told you, for, for, uh, for the men who someday you have a desire to be a pastor. The Bible says, He that desireth uh, to be a bishop desireth a good thing. And uh, I'm always on the lookout for the qualities in a young man that, uh, that he has the ability to pastor, you know, and, and uh, they're few and far between today, but uh, God will give us our share of it, I'm sure. But even that, you know, it's, it's great material just for all Christians. Because many of you, if not most of you, will never pastor a church. But you have to understand these concepts to understand how to be a leader within our church. And, uh, you know, the Bible talks about a governmental structure of, of deacons and elders. 
and uh, the Bible calls the elders overseers, men and women who help oversee the work of the ministry. And that's where we're at right now. And as I talked to you the last three couple times, laying out the strategy for that, showing you how we're going to accomplish that, you know, uh, you have a clear understanding now of exactly, you know, where we're going and what we're going to do. I had an interesting uh, call this week, and um, I had a call from a missionary uh, in Brazil. And uh, I don't remember him, but he, he obviously remembered me when I was either in Brazil or at some point. I, I didn't get the connection. I do know his boy has been, who's in the States has been calling me, and I've been helping him work through some things in the Bible. So I'm not sure the connection. But I just want to throw this out to you. Here was the offer he made me. And I turned down the offer, but here's the offer he made me. He asked me if I could come down with 10 men. And he said, I promise you, we can have a citywide crusade. We'll put two guys in each church across this city, and this whole city will turn out, and we can have a revival like that this church has never, this city has never seen. He says, you have the kind of people that we need. You know, I know where you're at. I know what you believe. And he made me the offer of bringing down 10 guys, would be me being 12, and we, we put in or 12 total, and we put you in as teams as two into these churches. You'd be on your own, and you would be responsible basically for running a week-long uh, ministry of preaching uh, into these churches and working as the New Testament sends them out two by two. Now, I obviously declined the offer because I learned through the years of ministry that a lot of things look good, but one of the things that you don't want to do is you don't want to get to the right place at the wrong time. But give us another year or so. And I believe that God allows those things to come into your life. One, to see if you jump for it, see where your own patience level is. And two, to show you what's coming down the line if you just stay on the track you're already on. And I'm telling you that that's where we're headed. And of course, you know, we've talked about that throughout the week and Thursday and, and yesterday and, and last Sunday. And, and that's why, you know, as we're in the pastoral epistles here, we really begin to see and understand some of these things come to light. These are things that you have to learn. If you're the path to leadership in this church and moving out as God expands our ministries, as we've talked about how he's going to do that, uh, is, an, is an incredible thing. But it takes the responsibility accountability of understanding the principle. It doesn't do you or me or anybody else any good to get into a biblical situation if you don't order yourself by the principles involved. And of course, that's how young men get in trouble all the time, and that's exactly uh, what you find, and that's why the principles are so vital that you and I learn it. Now, as we have come through First and Second Timothy, we saw that Paul charges young Timothy with a number of biblical responsibilities. In First Timothy, we saw 12, where he laid on him certain charges that responsibilities that a pastor or somebody who's in leadership in an elder deacon situation has to have. In 2 Timothy, last week, we saw uh, more charges built around one theme, and that theme was to remember and never forget what God has done for you. What a great book that is. Now we come to Titus. Now Titus is another young man that is a pastor. 
He's also a young man that Paul won to Christ someplace in his, in his journeys because in verse 4, he's called, Paul calls him my own son. Now, this epistle was written around the same time as First and Second Timothy, and Paul is again still in jail. And somewhere around 62 A.D., he writes to Timothy uh, these instructions. Now, remember, I told you when we started these pastoral epistles that in the New Testament, there are some books that are written to churches. And the New Testament, there are some books that are written to individuals. And the books that are written to churches will contain direct material given to the churches that's going to help them understand how they should function and deal with issues. Now, the books that are written to individuals that Paul writes are for personal accountability and personal things that you and I need to learn and understand. And of course, that's the great key here today as we come through. A strategy for training leaders and a strategy for reaching uh, the community where you're at. So, do your work well. Because if we stay faithful, God is going to take this little church and going to build some incredible young men and young ladies with the men and young ladies we already have. And God is going to take that thing and you watch what God does with it. Our job is to do what's right by the numbers, by the book. We do our job. God does His job. It's as simple as that. Now in this great little book here, he again goes beneath the surface. Remember I told you the story about the iceberg? How that when the Titanic hit the iceberg, they actually found that same iceberg a couple of weeks later. It had paint all over it where it scratched up along the side. And the truth about an iceberg is that what you see above water is only one-tenth. Nine-tenths of it lies beneath. So you see a little iceberg out there, you know, and you say, ah, I can run right through that. No, 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 you can't. Because you're only seeing part of it sticking up. Nine-tenths of it's still underwater. And that's what the ministry is. That's what the pastor it is. That's what leadership is. And I told you how people look at being a pastor and standing up in front of people and preaching and, you know, getting opportunities and dealing with people in the Bible. And that is a very small part of pastoring or being a leader. The real work gets done when nobody sees it under the surface. The real work of the ministry are the principles and the accountability and the guidelines you have to first learn and submit yourself to and then you can have the ministry that goes on from there. And that's the, uh, that's the great concept that's taught here uh, in these pastoral epistles. It shows another area uh, in the book of Titus that a pastor needs to understand and be accountable to. So with that in mind, let's, let's ask God's blessing today as we move into His Word. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. I love You. I thank You, Father, for all that You do. I ask Your Lord to... Uh, bless in a mighty way all that you have for us. Help us to understand and to give us the truth and help us, Father, to take men and women, uh, these young couples that you've given us, and to work in their lives individually, work in their marriages, and then prepare them for whatever you have for this church. May everybody, everybody, Lord, that's got any kind of time under their belt with the Bible see and get on board and understand the importance of what we have to do and Lord, we just pray that uh, those that uh, uh, you've given us that we be faithful to. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in the book of Titus, we enter into another concept that you have to get down as a pastor, leader, elder, whatever. And that is the concept of stewardship. 
concept of stewardship. Now, before we try to put all this together in a perspective for you and for me and our church, let's first, as we always do, get a biblical definition of what stewardship is. Now, there's many pictures of it in the Bible. You're going to find back there in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 uh, that David, who's a king, he has a steward, and that steward performs things for him. In Genesis chapter 44, you're going to find Joseph, who has made the uh, second position in the kingdom. He has a steward, and that steward does things for him. In Acts chapter 8, the familiar story of the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he's a steward. The Bible doesn't call him a steward in particular, but we know he is because the Bible does tell us that he has charge of all of the queen of Ethiopia's treasure. He's a steward. But the greatest detailed account of stewardship and being a steward for us to really grasp it is found in Genesis chapter 15 and again in Genesis chapter 24. Now don't turn to it, just follow me through with this. This is, we don't have to turn to it to see these things because this is not where we're really going here. What you have is this. When you come down through here, you find that in that story you have Abraham. Now Abraham is a type of God the Father in this story. Abraham has a son, just like God has a son, and that son is Isaac. So Isaac represents for us Christ. Then you have another man in this story whose name is Eleazar. Now Eleazar is the steward of Abraham. In other words, Eleazar has charge of all that Abraham has, and he has quite a bit. Ben Cartwright and the Ponderosa couldn't hold a candle to Abraham and what he had. And of course, he has a steward, and that steward is faithful in all that he has. Now, in the story there, in Genesis chapter 24, and we've talked about this before, the whole chapter, verse 1 through verse 67 or someplace, and there's a lot of them, we see Eleazar as a type of the Holy Spirit of God. But when you put it into a practical sense and, and, and look at it, you know what? Eleazar was doing a job. That job was he was finding a bride for Abraham's son Isaac. And in that sense, Eleazar is a picture of you and I. Because the Holy Spirit of God is living inside you and it's living inside me. And very frankly today, we as, a, as individual Christians, we have one really goal, and that is to find brides, the body of Christ, for our Father, God. And you and I, every time we win people to Christ, Honey, when you got saved Thursday night, what happened was is a great thing got fulfilled. You became part of God's family. You became a child of God. And now you are the bride of Christ. And it happened because somebody went looking for you. And that somebody was the Holy Spirit of God that was in somebody in this church. That's how the process works. So we see that, first of all, putting it all together, as a child of God, Save Holy Spirit of God living inside us, you and I have been made stewards of all that our Father has. You and I as a child of God, the day you got saved, the Bible says God made you a joint heir with Jesus Christ, and beyond that, God made you His steward. And He made you a steward of all that He has. Now, someday, we're going to give an account of our stewardship, and <clears throat> we know that's going to take place at the judgment seat of Christ. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 6. What a great verse. <clears throat> it says, In the house of the righteous is much treasure, but in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. Uh, you and I, as a steward, 
having all that God has and being in charge of that, God has sent you and I to do a job. And that job, just like Eleazar, is to find a bride for his son. Once we're in that family, the Holy Spirit of God works through us to accomplish that purpose. And stewardship is nothing more than this. Stewardship is nothing more than this. It's you and I recognizing that when God saved us, God saved us for a purpose, and God gave us everything that He had because He's not here, He's up there, but He wants to work through us, so He gave us everything. And we have to be stewards of that. I say this all the time. I give you the first five years that you've been saved. I don't even count it because you're just figuring out what's going on. Some of you have been saved a long time, but nobody's ever took the time within the Bible. So I don't hold you accountable. I put you in that category too. I'm talking about people who have found the Word of God and have gotten into it and are in churches or somebody has worked with them in their life where they really, really have the ability to do something with it. But simply this, putting the people in the first category out of the equation. If you've been saved five years or more, you are today... You are today exactly the investment that you have made with what God has given you. It is so simple and so easy to understand. Today, if you've been saved five years or more and you are accountable to the Word of God, and you know what I'm talking about by that, your marriage is exactly what it is based on the investment of making good investments or bad investments. Your family's the same way. Your own personal relationship with God, your own personal walk with God is nothing more than what you've done by taking what God has given you and the investments you have made, rightly or wrongly. When I say rightly or wrongly, I mean by the Bible principles or by your own idea of the way things should run. You see, the standard teaching today is that stewardship is about money. And that's simply not true. Now, stewardship obviously contains that aspect, but you're going to find that when you come through the Bible, there are a number of things detailed out as stewardship that you and I are to be stewards over. Money isn't one of them. Now, I've grown up all my life in Baptist churches, and all my life I have been taught that stewardship is all about money. I heard that one side down the other. I have been to more stewardship banquets where they bring you in and sit you down and feed you a meal and then slip a card underneath the deal and then beat you over the head for 45 minutes because you need to be a good steward to make a commitment so some preacher can fulfill his spiritual fantasies of being the guru of the world. And of course, Christians fall into that trap because that's what preachers today, for the most part, are all about. And when there's no accountability... Uh, you wind up and I wind up paying for their foolishness. Nowhere in the Bible is stewardship ever directly applied to your giving. And I'm going to tell you why, and there's a reason for that, and we'll see it in a minute. Now, in the Bible, you need to see these things uh, in Titus, before we get into the Titus. There's, as I said, there's a number of things that you and I are told to be stewards of that are directly mentioned. But money is not one of them. First of all, sometime when you have some time, go over to Luke chapter 16. You don't have to turn to it now. You don't have to turn to any of these now. I'd rather have you listen to me and then get the tape and then go back and go through it. You don't have the money for the tape? Just tell them you don't have the money and Jason will pay it. 
Anyway, he would do. In Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, you have a story. That story is about Israel's failed stewardship. Now, I know we make spiritual applications to it, and that's fine. You've got to be careful. I told you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first thing you've got to remember is that it's dealing with the nation of Israel directly. But you're going to find that in this great story in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, you're going to find the failed stewardship of Israel. You'll find the rich man in this story will be God. The steward will be Israel. The stewardship of this steward is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that's coming to Israel. No, verse 2, when Christ comes, he asks for them to give an account of their stewardship, that they may no longer be steward. They lost it. They lost it. Israel was God's steward of everything in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know the kingdom of heaven is the literal, visible kingdom that comes to the nation of Israel. Now, we know that Israel was God's steward of that from a number of places in the Bible. And we know that they failed in that stewardship, and God took that stewardship back from them. And I, you know, I, I get sick of hearing myself say it, probably not as sick as you get hearing saying it, me saying it, but I'm going to keep on saying it because I like in some aspects to make you sick. The bottom line is this, the parallels between Israel's failure and our failure as the church cannot go unnoticed in the Bible. And just as Israel was given a mission, and that mission was to them to be stewards of everything that God had given them and to be faithful in that stewardship, they failed. The church has been given a mission. Our mission is the kingdom of God. Our mission is to win men and women to Christ. Our mission is defined for you in the book of Ephesians. We talked about it when we came through it. We don't need to go through it again. That mission is for you and I to be faithful in understanding everything that God has given us and recognize the fact that you and I are stewards. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you and I are going to give an account of our stewardship and our millennial reward and inheritance is based on us being faithful. And that's the key word. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, in the aspect of stewardship says that a man <coughs> must be faithful, a faithful steward in what God has given him. Now, when you come through the Bible, you'll find that there are a number of them that are detailed out. And we're going to look at them today and <coughs> before we even get into Titus. Because Titus has only got three chapters. So it'll, be, it'll go fairly quick. But you've got to understand this before you get there. Now, the first one is Matthew chapter 20, verse 8. And the first thing we're told to be good stewards of is the stewardship of our ministry. Stewardship of our ministry. And as I said, the key word is faithfulness. When you do the ministry, you do it as God would do it Himself. And that is based on Christ three and a half years on earth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, giving you every scenario that you need and every scenario of how to be faithful in doing the ministry. You do it as He did it. There's never a time where Christ ever, ever, ever violated a biblical principle to get something done. He just never did. And that is rule number one of being a steward. You do it the way that God did it through Christ. And to have been a good stewardship in ministry, a man has to be faithful in a number of things. You see, we think, and you guys, you young guys have got to get this. And I will drive it home every way I know. I'll help you one-on-one -on -one 
every way I can. But you have got to get this. Because we think that ministry is standing up here, going to Brazil, or doing something out here that everybody says, wow, look at him. And the truth of the matter is, before you get to that point in your life, there's some other things God has given you to be stewards of that you have to be faithful in that are your ministry. First of all, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, the Bible says that we need to be faithful as stewards in ministering unto the Lord. Now, how in the world do I minister unto the Lord? Well, you better find out if you're going to be faithful steward in ministry because that's where it starts. The second thing, a faithful steward in ministry to your wife. The next thing is a faithful steward in ministry to your family. I can't emphasize enough how that the man in the relationship is absolutely, totally responsible for the spiritual. And we saw this yesterday when we studied it in our discipleship lesson, but we also saw it when we came through the book of Ephesians. And, and that's why you have to be faithful in these. There is a, there's always a progression of learning. God gave you a church, first of all, of one. Before He'll ever give you a church of 100, 20, 30, or 1,000, you've got to be faithful in a church of one. You know who that is? That's your wife. Then He grows your church. He gives you a family. Then you enter into the next level. Once you begin in its early stages to learn how to minister to the Lord, then you take those same principles and put them into your one church person, and then your two or three church person, and then in time as you are found faithful in those things as stewards. What does that mean? That means you take the principles and you do what's right and you learn how to make your family a cohesive ministry. I'm going to tell you right now, if your family doesn't learn how to be cohesive in working in this church or any church, you will never do it out there in a church someplace else. The principles are the same. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says, talking about a bishop, it says, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Answer is, he won't. So people come in with different circumstances of the problem. There's two things in the Bible, if you're paying attention, that the man of God is told to have rule over. One of them is his family, the other one is his own spirit. Either one of them will kill you. They have to be. If you think you can go down to Brazil in the middle of another culture when your body clock is way off and your night's day and, your night's, and, your, and you don't eat right or sometimes you don't eat anything and you come to the place where it affects you, if you don't think you have to have your emotions under control when they get pulled and they get pushed in those kind of situations, you don't understand what you're dealing with. And I'm telling you, that's why you've got to learn and understand to get control of it now. If you wah wah in this church, you'll wah wah out there in the ministry. It's as simple as that. And you have got to understand that the stewardship of ministry is more than you just getting up and saying, look at me. It is underneath the thing that you have to do. My concept of ministry has always been to give God the very best investment I can. Another thing I learned when I watched Christ in the New Testament, 
I watched Christ deal with every circumstance and situation in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Take this sometime. There is never a time when he ever dealt with somebody, a circumstance, or a situation, or whatever, that he saw it in a one-dimensional concept. He always saw whatever he was doing in a multi-dimensional concept. He saw more than what was just happening in front of him. And he, he realized how the, getting the best investment in everything that we do, and maybe you're not there yet, and, and, and probably most of you are not, but someday you're going to have to get into it, and you're going to have to be, I say it all the time, it's, in its simplest form, it's seeing things the way God sees them. You don't see it for your own personal gratification. You don't see it for your own personal glory. You don't see it for your own personal satisfaction. You look at it and you put you and yourself aside and you look at the big picture and you see this thing in a multifaceted way. Now, I learned that years ago and everything I try to do, I try to do that. I'll give you an example. We talked about this last week and I've talked with it some of you individually because of where we're going and this aspect of it. Now, if you remember all the way back, all the way back to Memorial Day, and I say these things back then, throw them out just to see who picks up on them. And way back then I told you that on Memorial Day, it was going to be a fun time. It was going to be picnics. And we were going to have a good time. That's one dimensional. I had to see that thing in another dimension. Because I know where I want to go. I know one of the greatest training grounds for young men and young ladies is the aspect of athletics. So when you're looking at it as let's go out and play softball, I'm looking at it from the aspect that, you know what? Let me do a test case here. Let me, we don't have very many people in our church, but let's see what happens. I'm going to give these people an unbelievably hard problem. I'm going to pick six teams, put a captain on it, we're going to divide up and the teams are going to come up short. Let's see what they'll do and see if we can make six teams in that thing. And you know what? We did. Once I saw that, I knew we had the potential to take it to the next level. So then we come into our softball in, in uh, Friday. And I know to most of people, it's softball. It's go out on Friday night and play the ball and see if you can hit it over the fence. And all that is good. All that is great. You never want to lose the competitive. I don't go out there to lose. You always go out there to do your best. If you, I don't care if you lose as long as you did your best. That's all. But you see, I look at that, and I watch. And I, I got to say, I put Marion in a tough spot. I put Marion in a tough spot. I put him out there as a captain, and he, you know what? Marion and I had been working together the longest, and and I felt like, you know, when the snap came over the middle, the play come in from the bench, put you in. And he did a great job. But I was watching, see, because I, I'm looking at this thing dimensional. You know what? Here's how you train young men when you see it past the ball game. You know what a church, you know what a, you know what a ball team is, 10 guys, 11 guys? It's a church. You put one guy in charge. He becomes the pastor. That guy on that team has to deal on a very small level everything that I got to deal with on a big level. He's going to have unsaved people come on his team. I'm going to have unsaved people come into this room. 
he's going to have people on that team who understand when I give him the directive, he's going he's to have people on that team who get right on board with him and understand and go with it. He's also going to have people on that team who don't get it. And while he's trying to pull the team together to balance it all out, all they want to do is win. And so they'll sometimes give him problems in the process. I like that. I don't want you to have an easy time of it. You know why? Because you don't learn, pastor. You don't learn. You're responsible for those 10, 11 guys. I gave you a goal to accomplish in the process of trying to win the games and win the brother. You've got to balance that thing out to try to make everybody happy, which will never happen. An old man and his boy decided to go to town one day. And they wanted to get some shoes put on their mule because their mule needed new shoes. So they went to Payless Mule Shoe down there, you know, and they were walking down the road. They got about a mile down the road and somebody come out and said good morning to him and he said, you two guys are the stupidest people in the world. He said, what do you mean? He said, here you are walking, you got five or six miles to go and you got a good mule right there and neither one of you riding it. You're fools. So, after that little admonition, both got on the mule. They went about another couple of miles down the road and somebody else come out and said, hey brother, how you doing? Boy, you guys are terrible. Old woman come out waving her broom and she says, look at you poor grown men. Two guys on that poor mule. So the dad got off and let the boy ride the mule and they went on to town. Got about another mile down the road and somebody come out and said, wow, look at that. That young punk riding that mule while his poor daddy has to walk. So the boy got off and the dad got on and the boy led the mule. They went another mile and somebody come out and said, look at that. Look at that. There's a case where that man's riding that mole and his poor little boy has to walk. So when they got to town, the boy and the dad were carrying the mule. <laughs> that is the best example I can give you on the ministry. And I'm telling you, when it comes to being in charge, you have to learn, and I'll tell you something else, you have to make decisions on that team because now the buddies you went out and run around with and hang out with all the time, now if you say you set out and you play, now you get attitudes you got to deal with and they find out that your friendships sometimes bump up against what you got to do and you got to learn to separate that out. I learned a great lesson from one of my boys that I trained for the ministry. He's pastoring up in New Jersey right now and uh, good boy. Years ago when we had our a Little League League and we had some hundred teams in it, you know, and Many of you remember all those days, and we didn't have enough umpires. And um, they came to me, and they said, hey, would you umpire? And I said, well, I'll do anything I can do to help, but I don't know anything about umpiring. And he said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll put you behind the plate. We'll do the field, and, and, we'll give you, and they gave me some stuff, and it was pretty fun, and it was pretty easy, and I liked it. And I sit there, you know, and I was behind the plate, you know, and I had the mask on and the catcher's thing, you know, and all the stuff on, and I was behind the catcher, and I was standing there, and the boys that were, I had given responsibility to to run the league and in and, and ch charge of the umpires, two of them were out in the field calling the field, and I was calling the plate. It's the greatest thing I ever learned. And I already knew it, but it just, it just reinforced it. And I'm back there, and Pitcher would come down there, and I enjoyed being with the young kids, and a guy throw a ball, I'd throw a pitch down through there, and it'd be inside, and I'd say, ball inside. 
He'd pitch again, and I'd say, strike, cut the corner of the plate. He got out of pitching, he'd come out, and I'd say, ball outside. Come back around, and he'd say, ball high, ball low. I was a good umpire. I had an eye for the plate. People said, you're not the best umpire in the world, but you know what? You're consistent and fair. I took that. He pulled me aside after the game, and he says, you're doing really good, and you're going to be really helped. But can I give you a little advice? And I said, sure, what? He said, when you're umpiring, don't ever say ball high, ball low. Don't ever say ball inside, ball high. Don't say strike, call, and corner of the plate. He says, you're in charge. You are the final authority. What you say goes. You don't have to explain your call to anybody. And when it's a ball, it's a ball. And when it's a strike, it's a strike. And when you don't decisively say that and you tell what it is, people question you in the fact that did you make the call. Are you sure about the call? He says, you're the final authority as the umpire. When you make the call, you make the call. If it's a strike, it's a strike. If it's a ball, it's a ball. Don't give them the benefit that you're not sure. So you're throwing it out so they'll agree. Don't care if they agree or not. As a pastor, when you're in charge, you're in charge. You make the call. You have one person you're accountable to, two people you're accountable to. One will be the guy who's in charge of the league, and the other one will be me. Because I have given you a task, given you a mission, charged you, and you don't owe anybody anything except me. And when you don't get it done the way I told you to get it done, I'm going to ask you why. Not publicly. I'm never going to embarrass you. I will help you along the way. And the bottom line is, that's how you learn. See, most people look at softball, baseball, one-dimensional. Not me. I see it as one of the greatest training grounds of taking young men, putting them into a pastoral situation where they've got to do everything on a smaller than I have to do on a major, except down there, nobody dies and goes to hell if you make the wrong call, see? But it's a great place because you suddenly find out your friends aren't really your friends anymore because you had to call it differently. You suddenly find out that you have to make hard stands and you have to make decisions and you can't blame them on somebody else. And boy, in the ministry... Nothing irritates me more than that. If you blew it, just tell me you blew it. You tell me that somebody else told you to do it and you do it. First question I'm going to ask you is, who are you working for, them or me? If you blew it, you blew it. No problem. We all blow it. But don't lie to me about it and blame it on somebody else. You take the responsibility. Sometimes you have to carry the mule. That's the stewardship of ministry. You see? Now, we do the same thing down the mission. It's got to be multifaceted. I put you guys down there who have never preached. Why? Because it doesn't make any difference how stupid you sound down there. And in most cases, and I told you, I don't just look at it as John saying, well, that's John, that's a great idea, just go down. No, I want to get everything out of it. So I go down there, as I told you this before. I got a couple of guys that I've worked with for years. They send me a report the next day or next week or sometime. Now it's two weeks. They're getting slow clack on it. But they say, hey, you know what? This guy did this. He communicated here. And, and for the moment, I've only had one guy that they said, please don't have this guy do it again. Now, will that guy do it again? Sure. They're not running it, I am, but I want their input. I want their input. I don't ever want to see it just from my perspective. Multifaceted viewing of what you're doing is absolutely essential. That's what Jesus did. He never went into a situation where all he saw was a withered hand. He never went in and just saw a blind man. He never went in and just saw a woman with infirmities. He always saw multidimensional of beyond that. That's the way you got to get into ministry. You got to see everything as you can get God's best 
Squeeze everything, every drop of everything you do. Squeeze that for God's investment. You have to begin to see it that way. The concept of, in ministry is give God the best investment of what he has charged you to be a stewardship with that you can. Well, you're going to hear more about that because we've, got, we've already talked about Thursday and, and yesterday and last week. we got some great things cooking here. All in timing with this. Well, the second thing is Luke chapter 12, verses uh, 4. Uh, uh, four. I'm not sure where it is. Luke chapter 12, verse 41 through 45. I, I, while I'm preaching to you, I'm, get, I'm developing a migraine and my eyes are going blind. I can't even see. I've got two little things that look like here. I look like I'm looking two little holes through the snow. So I can't read my notes very good. But it's Luke chapter 12, verse 41 and 45. Stewardship of your heart. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says, For thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. It says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You've got to understand that the number one thing in your own personal life, we talked about it before, the number one thing the church has to guard against is bad doctrine. The number one thing you have to guard against is your attitude of heart, that you always love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. That's why the Bible says when you get saved, God gives you the ability to have new affection, new attitude. Old things are passed away, all things become new. That's why you're going to find that the Bible talks about your attitude and your heart being your treasure. And where, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. In Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about the armor of God, you get what is called the breastplate of righteousness, and you put it on and it covers your heart. You know why? Because that's the first place the devil is going to nail you. He's going to come after your attitude of heart about God and His Word. That's how it happens. Every time it happens, that's how it happens. And it's as simple as that. Your treasure is where your heart is. And if it's this church, it's obvious. If it's the Word of God, it's obvious. And if it's not, it's obvious. Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if any man love God, the same is known of him. And I'll tell you to the reverse of that, if any man doesn't love God, the same is known of him. Can't hide it. Now, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, we have the stewardship of the talents. Now, this is commonly taught two ways. Taught as talents being abilities or skills. And, of course, uh, talents represent uh, money in a Roman Jewish sense. So this is where, when you do get it, uh, this is where they're talking about they make it money. But they ain't talking about money if you're paying attention. When you read Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, we're talking about the stewardship of the talents you'll find that the Jews had two types of talents. One was gold talent, one was a silver talent. We know what they represent. The gold in the Bible represents the deity of Christ, and the silver represents the redemption. You know what these talents are a picture of? The true riches that God has given you. They're the true riches that the church at Laodicea lost in Revelation chapter 3. They're the true riches. They're the true riches. You and I are to be a steward of the true riches that God has given you. Let me ask you a question. This is not a test. If you know it, yell it out. This is not a test. Anybody know the first place that you find the true riches showing up in the Bible? It's not a test. Anybody know? It's in the book of Luke. If you want to find the true riches in your Bible for the first time, you know where you got to go? You got to go to Luke 16:11. You want to find the true riches the first time in your Bible? They're in Luke chapter 16:11. Just a coincidence, of course. 
you got to protect your heart. You have to be a steward of your own heart. Your heart will mess you up faster than anything in this world. And of course, you see, your heart sets your priorities. And then you have the stewardship of your talents, the true riches. Psalms 119, verse 127, talking about the Word of God, says, I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Psalms 12, verses 6 and 7, says that the Word of God is like silver, buried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Silver. Gold will represent who God is. Silver will represent what Christ did for you. Those are the true riches. Those are the true riches. And it is absolutely vital that you look at those things and you become steward of the true riches. Then the next thing is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, in your Bible, you're going to have that there are seven mysteries that are given to the church. There are 12 mysteries given to the nation of Israel. And let me just say this, the key to everything in the Bible hangs on these mysteries. In a nutshell, what they do is they open up God's systematic process to learn the Bible His way. God has a way that He intended us to learn the Word of God. He built it into His own book. It's the best way. Man may have another way, but God's way is always best. And you're going to find that this way is only, it's in mystery form. And it's in a mystery form because the key to learning the Bible is your attitude of heart and loving it and accepting it for what it is. So God put these mysteries, these seven mysteries and twelve mysteries in a mystery form so that smart, educated, scholar, arrogant people could never get them. And the dumb people just like you and me who just are stupid enough to believe God gave us a book we can walk with and trust and raise our families, you'll get it. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. All right, if these mysteries would be taught, then there would be absolutely no heresy in the body of Christ. There would be no bad teaching. These mysteries laid out in the Bible internally, the way God laid them out, are designed to keep your doctrine pure, and there is absolutely no way false doctrine can come into your church when these mysteries are laid out and your people understand them and see them in the Bible the way they are. Every problem in Bible Christianity comes from the unfaithfulness of God's ministers and pastors in being stewards of the mysteries of God and teaching them to His people. And I'm going to take that one step further. Once you understand what I'm saying and see it in the light of I'm laying it out, you couldn't miss this thing. A blind man could see it. At the judgment seat of Christ, ladies and gentlemen, God is going to require at us, at the judgment seat of Christ, men and women in the body of Christ, for the blood of every nation is going to stain the hands of every minister and every pastor all down through history, certainly in the time page that we live in. Because, my friend, it is the unfaithful stewards of the Bible that have led and will lead to the demise of every nation on the face of this planet. The fact in history is, if you got any time to look it up and take any time and know anything about it at all, no nation in the history of the world ever went Catholic, ever went Communist, ever went atheistic, ever went socialistic, ever went pagan, or ever went liberal until the men who were called to be the faithful stewards abandoned the preaching of one book. And when that book went, the country went. And they began to be teachers, educators, philosophers, and scholars instead of preachers. My Bible says in Romans chapter 10, the great chapter on winning people to Christ and what it takes to be saved. It simply says this, 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of how they, whom not, uh, they uh, have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? The preaching of the Word of God is absolutely paramount. When it goes and men and pastors fail to teach their people the mysteries of God and fail to be stewards in these things and make stewardship money so you can give all of these things, the moment you do that, my friend, you have violated and your country, your church, is just a matter of time that the only thing that keeps a country stable is the preserving of the Word of God through the preaching of men in the Word of God, being faithful stewards, understanding Understanding that God has entrusted to them the ability to wreck or make nations based on what you do with one book. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, you find the stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold grace, many attributes to grace. And here again, the average child of God is lost when it comes to it. In your Bible, you find the grace of God. You find the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not the same. You find the true grace of God. You find the election of grace, the grace of suffering, the grace of giving. You find the riches of His grace, the gift of the grace of God, the grace of God in truth, the grace in singing, the grace in speaking, the grace to help in time of trouble. That's 12 right there, and there's many more that are, and they're all different because the Bible says the manifold, see, again, God's people as God's pastors are one-dimensional. They never see anything that they do in other, the natural dimension that they're in. They never step out of the natural, then live into the supernatural, and they never see circumstances, people, or whatever from a multi-dimensional way. To everything to them, a ball game is a ball game. This is this. It's all one way. They never see it as God sees it, that it is manifold, and God's grace is manifold. Now, if you notice as we come through here, they're not one, one of these mentioning anything about giving. And I told you I'd tell you why later. You know why? You know why God doesn't make stewardship money in particular? And He makes everything else stewardship? Because, you know what? If you were steward in all of these things and faithful in them, the last thing that's going to be your problem is giving anything to God. But see, that's where pastors miss it. They are so money-hungry for their people to give so they can fulfill their spiritual fantasies that they lose sight of teaching people the Bible and all they do is want to get in your pocket. And the bottom line is, if, if you just teach people and you are faithful and teach them to be faithful stewards, they will recognize a steward knows that everything he has isn't his anyhow. It all belongs to God. But boy, I'll tell you what, we have got it backward in the world of Christianity that we live in today. And that's why I tell you, don't want to give anything, don't give a dime. I mean, I've heard preachers get up there and say, you know what, if you don't give, we don't make our budget. The lights of heaven are going to be shut off. Well, shut them off then. That's all your God can do. If my God depended on what somebody gives to keep heaven running, close it down. Close it down. Go to Disney World. At least they got a reality there that isn't real. We can all get into it. Walk around with Snow White. Somebody could even get a job as one of the seven dwarfs. Now, with all that in mind, that was the introduction. With all that in mind, let's move quickly here through this book. This book's a great book, and it'll take us no time at all based on that. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, For a bishop must be blameless as the stewards of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, not striker, not given to filthy lucre. 
but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word, as he hath been taught, that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort, that's preach, and to convince the gainsayer. Now, a gainsayer is somebody who opposes truth. Now, what he's saying here is the fact that a, a minister, a bishop, a pastor, needs to be blameless as the steward of God. And with that one verse right there, in particular, holding fast the faithful word. But in that verse right there, he just wiped out 99.9999% of the pastors in the world today. He says in verse 9 that their job to be faithful stewards of holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. You see that thing? That's why it's so important, as Timothy said, and Paul said to Timothy, that what you have you commit to faithful men. That's why I'm committed to train you for ministry the way I want to train you. I know what works and I know what doesn't. I didn't start this job yesterday. I know how to do it. I know what will work and I know what won't. And I know the best flight simulator to put you in. Remember that story about my buddy that flew F-111s? I know the best flight simulator, and I'll throw every snowstorm, ice storm, tornado at you I can get. You know why? I want to see how you react. I want to see if you've got the stuff to make it. I want people on your team who, who are unsaved. I want people in your life when you do other ministries, and the one we talked about last Thursday, and the one we talked about uh, yesterday morning. I want those areas that you begin to fill in and begin to not always get it going the way that it's supposed to go. Christianity doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. You have to learn to be able to adapt. You have to learn to be able to overcome. You have to be able to do those things. Then he says in verse 10 and 11, stop bad doctrine. Chapter 1 shows over and over again that the number one problem we have in the church is bad teaching. And we as a church, as a church, are guard against bad doctrine. He says in verse 14, not giving heed to, to Jewish fables and uh, commandments of men but turn, uh, that turn from the truth. And that's, that's our job. Our job is to hold fast the Word of God. Then in chapter 2 he says this. Again, familiar theme. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in the faith, in charity and patience, the aged women likewise, that they may in behavior be become of holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to, live, uh, to love their husbands and to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that in the word God may not be blasphemed. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine. You know what that means? That means you live what the Bible says. Europe. Your life is a pattern of doctrine. You live what it says. Showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. Now again, we see the Bible problem here, sound doctrine. And here we begin to see that <coughs> the aged men and the aged women. <coughs> you remember that before we started the books of the Bible, we came through a number of concepts, and one of those concepts was the, uh, one of those concepts, uh, was the concept of spiritual growth. And I showed you how that there's seven stages of spiritual growth. And the last stage was the aged. And when you get to that point in the church, that you have men and women who have been around for a long time who are overseers. People that you can absolutely 100% trust with the ministry. They, you know that when they do it, they're going to do it exactly like you. There ain't no coming back and saying, well, you didn't tell me that. Well, I didn't know that. No, no. You've been around long enough now. You understand. You have proven yourself. You're good to go. When you get men and women like that, 
you have men and women now that you can take and they, they train and they bring along the other people. The women set the example for the younger women in their marriage and their family. You can be raising your child up right now and you can maybe have some problem with your kid in discipline or have some problems in this and there's an older lady in the church that you, whose kids are grown up, they're doing much right. You can go to say, hey, help me. Can you show me? That's what it's about. The younger, the, 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 the aged men helping the, the pastor train other men for the ministry. Realizing that we're all in this together. Doing whatever you got to do. In all things, showing a pattern. See, a pattern. Now, there's a process of teaching you the Bible. And I have laid it out over and over again. But let me say it again another way. Hopefully, you can, in enough time, you'll grasp it. And I, you're all doing well. I mean, I am absolutely... You know, I meet with most of you all week long and uh, off and on and, and always willing to meet with anybody. And I must say that I am, I am more than impressed and with the training, where you're at on the training schedule here. But here's how it works. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 through 13. Don't turn to it, just listen to me. It says, Whom shall we teach knowledge and to whom shall we make to understand doctrine? That's a question. Whom shall we teach knowledge and whom shall we make to understand doctrine? Doctrine. Now that's the bottom line. Doctrine is absolutely important. You're going to see how important it is in just a second. But here's how you do it. He says there, as you come down through there, he says precept upon precept, line upon line. Now the indication back in Isaiah, and I know it's dealing with Israel directly, but it's, a, it's the same things apply to us. When you got saved, the Bible said the day you got saved, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you laid a foundation in your life. That foundation is Jesus Christ. The rest of your life you build on that foundation. I've showed you this on Thursday night. I showed you how that we have taken every Bible subject one at a time, like a little block. I gave you the definitive verse on it in, in learning how to put your Bible study Bible together. <coughs> I gave you the definitive verse and I gave you every other verse you needed. And when you were done, every Thursday night you got two or three more building blocks. And what you do is you lay those blocks on that foundation. Those blocks represent precepts and doctrines. When you build a wall, and I'm no mason, but I do know this. When you build a wall, you don't put the blocks all on top of each other. You tie them in. <coughs> Why? I don't know. But I, I like that kind of talk. You tie it in. <coughs> you tie them in so the wall is stronger. <coughs> you interlock them. Now, when the cement dries, your wall is stronger. That's what you do with Bible doctrine. Every doctrine we built on your foundation will interlock with another one. And as we build it one block at a time, every time you come to church, every time you come to Thursday night, you build on that foundation more blocks that in the course of a couple of years or whatever, and what we get in the process between ourselves or what else we're doing, we, we begin to tie in the blocks and put it all together. That is the way that it works. Now that is so vitally in sport because he says in verse 15 of Titus 2, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now this is a great verse. Let me show you something. Now just listen to this because I don't want you to lose it flipping back and forth. <clears throat> Sometime go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, 29. I've told you this before, but here it is impacting you. It says in verse 28, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. 
Now, this was the number one issue that everybody had, the scribes and Pharisees had with Christ. Now, let me show you why. Next verse. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribe. Now, you see that? That's why the people gravitated to him. He said something that made sense. He'd said something that helped them in their daily life. He was telling them something authoritative, and it was doctrine. I told you the word doctrine means to teach. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we saw it last week. It says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, on no good work. Then doctrine perfects you. Now, here's the thing. And this is why the devil took your doctrine from you. And this is why people don't teach doctrine anymore. They don't know doctrine anymore. Because it tells you in Matthew chapter 17, verse 28 29, that Christ's doctrine was his authority. You don't have doctrine. You don't have any authority. No doctrine, no authority. You know why? Because doctrine shows you what's right versus what's wrong. It shows you how to rightly divide the word of truth. When the devil took your Bible, he took the doctrine. And when you lose the doctrine, you have no authority because you don't know what's right and what's wrong. Verse 29 says, not as the scribe. There was your problem. You see, the scribes then and the scribes today don't want you to have a book that is your absolute final authority. You know why? Because they want to be your authority. Just like Jesus' time. Nothing's changed. Doctrine will always be connected with your authority. And when he says, speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, he's talking about the sound doctrine of chapter 2, verse 1. All right, chapter 3, almost done. Great chapter on how to deal with heretics. Now, all through this little book, you find that the real heretics have been calling the true Bible believers heretics, and that's the way it always works. We talked about that. But basically in this chapter, you find how to deal with it. Now, right now, you know, you know a lot of you have people that are giving you a tough time, and I, it's good right now because it's, 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 it sharpens your skills. It gives you ability to, it's like going to the batting cages. You get a little practice. And, uh, you know, in time, you know, you, you'll learn some things that he's teaching here. And here's the problem. Basically, in this chapter, he says in verse 9, don't get caught up in the debate and all the foolishness because you have a job to do. And one of the things that you can fall into the trap that you, you, you actually begin to enjoy dealing with stupid people about heresies and you don't get anything else done. What the devil does is he uses them to stop you from getting done what you need to be done because you're spending all your time dealing with people who don't really want the truth and you're wasting your time. Now, your, your attitude to heart is good. You want to win them to Christ, but let me tell you something. There are some people that you're going to deal with that you're not going to get saved any way, shape, or form because they've already bought the ticket and they're just waiting for the train to show up take them to hell. I hate to say that, I'm sorry, but that's just the way life is. And you have to realize that, verse 10, he says, dealing with heretics, he says in verse 9, first of all, but avoid foolish questionings and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. You see, this is what I just said. He says, in dealing with a heretic, you give it to him two times, and if he doesn't take it then, you go on someplace else, do what you're doing. Don't get hung up with him. God will deal with him and his sin because he's subverted and he's deceived himself. And uh, it happens all Hardly a week goes by. <coughs> I don't get a phone call from somewhere around the country. Last week, <coughs> we were going somewhere on Saturday. We were getting a car, my mobile phone goes off, and there's this little guy down in 
someplace, and he says, Brother Bob, he says, I listened to all your tapes, and he says, I really have helped me learn the Bible. He says, but I got a problem, you know. He says, I'm talking to this guy at work, and he's got a Bible education, and <clears throat> he told me that there's mistakes in my Bible, and he showed me back there in, in uh, 2 Chronicles 36 and 2 Samuel 24 that one place says Jehovah can reign eight years, and the other place says he reigned 18 years, and he said, that's a mistake. He said, Brother Bob, I don't believe it's a mistake, but I don't know how to explain it to him. Can you tell me so I can go whack him? I said, yeah, sure it will. So from here to St. Joe, wherever we were going, I showed him how to whack him. You know why? It happens all the time. Because <clears throat> there's people out there that want to destroy your faith in the Word of God. It's as simple as that. Now, heresies are important. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, I don't know if you remember, I gave this or not. <clears throat> it says, therefore, there, uh, for there must be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. You know what heresy does? Heresy shows you who's real and who isn't. Heretics in a church will always reveal who the truth is. You know, it's kind of tough when you're the only one to believe something and nobody in the, else, in the history of the world did. We either got a real problem here. Either you're the only one right and everybody else is wrong, or you're wrong and everybody else is right. And what it does, anybody who's got any sense, you see that this guy's off the wall. I got a guy right now. <clears throat> I haven't talked to him for a while. <clears throat> he don't go to church anywhere. <clears throat> He's busy right now as we speak writing great epistles. <laughs> Understanding that in the tribulation period when the rapture's going that the Jews, he's been told by God that the Jews are going to find his book and they're going to find the truth of everything that God wants them for what God told him to write. Now how do you argue with a guy like that? My thing is, as long as he stays home and writes, he doesn't infect anybody else, so let him go to it. See? But now if a guy like that came in here and sit down in here and we had a little testimony time and we said, anybody got a testimony? And some of you said, well, I thank God for saving me, and I love my Bible, and thank God for teaching me this, and thank God for the church that taught me this. And he stands up and says, I just want to thank God that God gave me the calling, you all, to write the books and the epistles that the Jews are going to find in the tribulation period, and I'm living here in independence, and they're going to come down and find those books, and they're going to find out the truth, and God called me to do that, and I just want to have you all to pray for me. When he sat down, there wouldn't be any in this room that wouldn't say, cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. You know what you're dealing with. I don't want to tell you. You know why? Because the Bible says there has be Harry's among you, that they which are approved may be manifest. The, the, the error shows the truth. Then in verse 5, it says this, great verse, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit of God. You're going to find the word regeneration only two times in your Bible, and you need to know why. The first time is here, the second time is Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Because here it's talking about you and I, the day we got saved, we got regenerated. The other place in Matthew, it's talking about the nation of Israel that gets regenerated as a nation at the second coming of Christ. You've got to know that. Only two places you find it in the Bible. Well, I can't close this book out without giving you some outlines that'll help you. You're always looking for good stuff to study. Let me bring you through here and just give you a few quick outlines, and we're still ahead of schedule here. We'll be out of here. What you have to do and what I have to do is understand that God gave us everything to be in charge of Him for. And we have to be faithful stewards. I love some of you that I know intimately. I love everybody, whether I know you on a level in the Word of God or not. But the bottom line is this. There is no friendship in the world that will take the place of what the Bible says to do, right or wrong. It's the way it has to be. 
because I have to be more faithful to that than I have to you. Because if I'm not faithful to that, I'll never be faithful to you. So you have to realize that when we train you up to be a man or a woman that's going to take responsibility in this ministry, I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to tell you right now, don't, and, and hear this, because I don't want you coming back to me later and saying, I didn't know. Hear me. Every one of you, hear me. Because we're going places, and we know where we're going. I'm telling you right now, if you're going to do it, do it just like I would do it. And if you can't do it that way, and you're not ready yet, then don't do it. But don't take it, do it wrong, and then say, you know what, I didn't understand this, I didn't understand that. If you don't understand it, sit down till you do. Sit down till you do. I had a guy preach one time years ago, and I had him preach it at one of my Bible conferences. And uh, he didn't do a bad job. But he had some problems. And I tried to help him through them, you know. And afterwards, he came up and he, he, you know, he said to me, he says, I said, I said, I said, you did good. I said, that was, that was good. He said, no, he says, I didn't do very well. He said, I didn't do very good at all. He said, I, he said, I really just, he says, I don't know what it is. He said, I just couldn't get my thoughts together. He said, I just didn't do a very good job. Now, at that point, he wants me to put my arm around him and say, oh, no, you really did a good job. No, no, that's not what you need. What I said was, hey, okay, do me a favor. The next time I give you an opportunity to preach and you're rusty or you're not ready or you can't do it, would you tell me ahead of time? A lot of people went to a lot of expense to put this together for somebody to give it straight, hot, and true. If you ain't up to the task, please tell me so I can put somebody on the spot that is. See? Now, is that hard to understand? A lot of people go to a lot of effort to get you into a place to do something. You better learn to do it right. I don't know what else to tell you. I will help you any way that I can. But you have to be a faithful steward in it, and you have to understand that there is a way to get it done. Now, let me give you some good sermon outlines. And maybe you can use this. Your own personal studies. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, there's a great study on the faith of God's elect, you and me. And it breaks down simply like this. And I'm not going to give you all the verses. You can go up, but here's the outline. And you won't get it now, so just get the tape and get it through. It says this. It says the truth of God to be accepted, the holiness of God to be followed, the eternal life in God to be given, the promises of God to be taken and claimed, and the preaching of the Word of God in those things that we believe. A nice little outline for your own personal faith in the Lord. And then in, in chapter 1, verse 5, we have a little outline of the ordained elder. Four points to it. Must have a regulated family. Must have a controller, controllable temperament. Must have biblical lifestyle. Must know the book and know how to live it and teach it. Then in chapter 1, verse 11, people whose mouths must be stopped. People who attack the Bible. People who will destroy the faith of young men. People whose motive in the ministry is money. People who teach fables. People who spend their time as experts in other people's business. People who split churches by trying to overthrow authority of the pastor in the Bible. Then in, in chapter 1, verse 5, this is a great one. Every young man ought to go through this one. The pure mind. The pure mind rejoices in truth. It rejoices in God's judgment. It sets no wicked thing before his eyes. And the pure mind flees youthful lust. 
Then you have in verse 16, the defiled mind. You ought to study that. The defiled mind cannot discern biblical truth. It cannot emphasize the things of God or comprehend the things of God. It cannot cease to imagine evil, will dwell on pornography and demonology, will invent a system of self-justification, and in time will, will develop a reprobate mind. I mean, they're just truth concepts coming right down the line. Then the next one in chapter 2, verse 1, the things that bring about sound doctrine, men and women whose mouths are occupied with witnessing and telling truth. Men and women whose minds are occupied with God, Bible, and the things in the Bible. Activities that teach and build strong uh, families to work together and get along with other Christians. A life given to witnessing for Christ with, uh, in your neighborhood and within your own community. Then in chapter 2, verse 11, God teaches what God teaches to man. Oh, this is a good one. God teaches man what real love and kindness is. God teaches man what love can accomplish. God teaches man that this present world system is only temporary. God teaches man that he's coming back. God teaches man to take care of how he lives and be a faithful steward. And God teaches man that we'll all give an account of the judgment seat of Christ. That in chapter 3, verse 3, the dim dark past. Oh, this is a good one. We were foolish and we needed wisdom. We were disobedient and we needed righteousness. We were deceived and we needed light. We were sensual and worldly and we needed strength. We were hateful and we needed love. Then he says in three, what we just talked about, avoiding the heretics. They should be avoided because they will not accept an admonishment from the body of Christ. They should be avoided because they will, they will overthrow young Christians' faith. They should be avoided because they are self-centered uh, and self-condemned already. They should be avoided because their sins are contagious. And then lastly, good works for necessary uses. Good works the church ought to do. Good works, it's a good work to support the minister and his family as he labors for you. It's a good work to help the poor and to show God's love, like we did at Christmas time last year with all the children whose moms are in prison. It's a good work to supply the needs of missionaries on the field. It's a good work to give large offerings in an emerging situation where another work needs help because of something that has happened. It's a good work to take care of the aged Christians and God's people who cannot take care of themselves. Outlined throughout that book. And all these outlines are within that great book that shows you and I, as the ministers of God, we must be stewards. More than stewards, faithful stewards. Every head bowed and every eye closed.